From chapter 3 of Genesis, we're reading this morning, page 2 in your hymn, or your pew Bibles. There we go. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? The woman, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. You will desire, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat fruit from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. 
So how many of you have been reading along this week? Did you read your chapters, 2 through 11? Ah, oh, that's awesome. You guys are, you guys are doing great. Um, if, you, uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, in, uh, in your bulletin here, we have this insert called Hot Chapters of the Bible. And uh, what we're doing is, is we're walking through the story of the Bible because we realize that a lot of times we look at, when we learn the Bible, we learn it in little bits and pieces. Like we grow up in Sunday school and we hear a lesson about this or we hear this story, but very seldom do we ever kind of work through the whole of Scripture and understand exactly what it's like in context. And it's kind of like trying to watch a short clip of a movie and then try to know what the whole movie is all about. And so what we're doing this summer is that we're starting at the beginning and we're working our way all the way through and we really only have time, you know, we don't have time to take one chapter every, every week and then go through every chapter of the Bible. And so what we're going to do is, is we're taking a look at the broad movements of Scripture, give you the opportunity to read as much of it as you can and sort of read it in context so that when you come back to a passage, then you'll know exactly where it fits in the story and that helps us to understand what they mean. Now, Christians, of course, we say that the Bible is our authority. Um, And yet, we also say the Bible is a story. And oftentimes, people have trouble figuring out, well, how can we say that a a story is the authority for us? It's easy for us to figure out how, for instance, the Ten Commandments can be the authority for us because we just follow the commandments or maybe the teachings of Jesus. Um, How do we can understand how those things can be authoritative for us, but what about a story? How does a story uh, be? A, how can a, a story be an authority in our lives? But see, the reason that Christians live the way we do is not just because we have all of these individual commands. We live the way we do, or at least we should live the way uh, a certain way, is because. Uh, God created us with value and purpose and he placed us within a larger story. It's scripture that tells us who we are. It's scripture that tells us who we are and when we know who we are, then it tells us how we should live. Okay, and so that's how scripture as a story can be the authority for us. Now, today we're gonna start looking and we'll start to see this theme that runs through the rest of scripture, okay? So you can expect that every week from now on, you're gonna start to see the same theme that runs through scripture and it's a dilemma that the first human faced and every human throughout scripture faced and we even face today and the dilemma is this. Will I trust in the wisdom of God or will I rely on my own wisdom? Okay, that's the dilemma. Now, last week, (coughs) we learned that human beings were made in the image of God. So for instance, we saw this in in Genesis 1.26. God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Okay, so, of course, that begs the question, well, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? That's not terminology that we use very often, well, except in church. Well, it really can mean a couple of things. One of the things that we talked about last week is is that it means that every human being has unsurpassable worth and dignity. And it means that no matter, no matter who we are, no matter who we meet on the street, we should treat them with dignity and worth. 
Okay, that's why Jesus says things like, okay, I know that you guys love your friends, but also you should love your enemies as well. And why is that? Because even your enemies are made in the image of God. And so that's really, that's part of it. But if you were to talk to like a Genesis scholar or Old Testament scholars who have really studied this, there's one other thing that will, that will, um, that will, that really means what it means talks about what it means to be made in the image of God. There you go. Um, And what they'll say is, is that it means that human beings have been given a purpose, okay? It's to rule over and to care for God's creation. So when Genesis talks about being made in the image of God, that's really at the heart of what it means to be made in the image of God, a purpose, a responsibility that we have to care for his creation. Now, the, the phrase, the image of God, is, was, was really common in the ancient world. So if you were to go to Babylonian or Assyrian or Egyptian texts, uh, the kings or the pharaohs were always said to be in the image of God. And so you see inscriptions from all over the place. Uh, there's, there's one in particular, um, that, that just as an example, that the god Amun-Re had written to Pharaoh Amenhotep III. And, okay, and this is what the inscription says. You are my beloved son who came forth from my members, my image whom I've put on earth. I have given to you to rule the earth in peace. And you see all kinds of other inscriptions like this throughout the ancient world. And the phrase image of God always refers to the king or it always refers to the Pharaoh. And so scholars will say that the inscriptions, and actually many of the pagan myths that are around there, were written to legitimate the king as the power or the authority so that they could maintain the social structure. I mean, think about it. Calling the king or the Pharaoh in the image of God or calling them divine then gives them divine authority over the people. And of course, the people are far less likely to rebel if they believe that the power of God or the authority of God is behind the leader. I mean, you just don't have a whole lot of choice. But the image of God in the ancient world actually extended even further than that. You see, ancient empires were big places, and it took a long time to get a chariot from one side of Egypt to another, and, so, and the king could only really be in one place at a time. And so the king would commission statues of himself to be placed all throughout the empire to remind his subjects of who is in charge. These things were the images of the king and they were intended to remind the people that the king was the image of God. Okay? This is what the image of God meant in the ancient world. Now, contrast that with what we see in the Genesis story. You see, what makes the Genesis story so radical is that it's not just the king who is made in the image of God. It's every person to walk the earth Every person to walk on the earth is made in the image of God and reflects God to the rest of creation. And so what you see in Genesis, what it means to be made in the image of God is to represent the king. But of course, the image of God doesn't mean that we're just to represent the king. We're also called called to continue the work of the king as well. Because being made in the image of God is is really cool. You have to admit that, right? Okay, It's, it's really cool. It's an awesome privilege But when you think about what it really means, you also have to understand that it's a huge responsibility. Okay, and that's why this thread runs through the whole Bible, that as humans, we are made for a purpose that is greater than ourselves. And in order to carry out the responsibility that God has given us, we need God's wisdom. Now, that's the backdrop. And uh, (coughs) 
So we're going to continue the story in Genesis, and rather than go straight to chapter 3, we're going to do a little bit more background work in chapter 2. So I want you to turn to chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 9, and, uh, and we're going to see um, what God told Adam and Eve. It says this, it said, God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then skip down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will surely die. So here's the picture we have. God places Adam and Eve in the garden, and, and the garden, of course, is called Eden, and Eden means uh, abundance, it means pleasure. As you can imagine, Eden was paradise. Everything was the way it was supposed to be. That's why when we look in chapter one, when God is creating everything, he looks at it and he takes a step back and, it, and it each, each day, he takes a step back and he looks at it and he says, it is good. It was everything they could ever want. And so Adam is living here in paradise, and there are all kinds of fruit trees around that he's free to eat from. But in the middle of the garden, there are two special trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, these two trees are are representative, okay? Um, The tree of life represents God's provision, represents God's provision, okay? It was a continual reminder that God had given them everything that they have. He was the one who sustained them. He is the good king who takes care of his image bearers. And there seems to be some indication that also if they ate from the tree of life, that they would get perpetual life, that there was something that was life-giving about this tree, something special about the tree. And God said, you can eat as much as you want from this tree, Eating from the tree of life means trusting in God's goodness and even God's abundance. The second tree is what we call the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this tree always needs more explanation because I think people oftentimes don't understand it. I think actually most people, and this is what I was taught, believe that this tree was placed here and really the only purpose for it was to test Adam and Eve, to, to sort of tempt them because if they didn't have free will, if they didn't have the, the ability to be able to disobey God, they also couldn't love God. And so oftentimes we just think that that tree is there as a way to test Adam and Eve. But but actually, it's more, much more nuanced than that. Because like the tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is actually representative, and it represents wisdom. Okay? But even this needs a little bit more explanation. <clears throat> now, we call the tree uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and, uh, and it uses those two words, good and evil. Now, the Hebrew word for good is the word tob, T-O-W-B, and we translate it as good, and in this case, uh, we tend to think about it only in, in moral terms, okay? We think about good as a moral word, but just like in the English, uh, the, word, the, the Hebrew word tob can also mean other things. For instance, when we say uh, this pizza is good, we don't mean that it's a moral pizza, Right? Um, if we say he's a good basketball player, that doesn't just mean that he doesn't cheat, you know, that he plays morally. It means that he's skilled, that he's excellent at it. And the word good can mean all kinds of other things. It can mean pleasant or everything was the way it was intended to be. And the same is the case for the Hebrew word tob. So it can mean moral, okay? It can mean, mor- mean morality, but can, it can also just mean good and pleasant and desirable, 
Um, in the same way, the Hebrew word for evil is the word ra, just R-A. And, and actually, the word for evil, the word evil is probably not the best translation here uh, because it, it just gives it too much weight. Now, certainly it can mean evil, but evil is, so, is such a heavy word, isn't it? Okay, but the word ra doesn't necessarily have to mean that either. It can mean moral evil, but it can also just mean unpleasant or harmful, things that we don't like. Okay, it's not necessarily evil, but it is bad. And in fact, the word bad might be, other than the fact that it sounds kind of weird to talk about the tree of the knowledge of good and bad, um, it actually might be a better interpretation of it uh, because it doesn't carry quite the weight that, that evil does. Uh, but even more importantly, the phrase Tob and Ra, those things are, are used together quite often in the Old Testament, good and bad. And it means something specific. So for instance, the phrase is, is used in Deuteronomy 139. And, and the situation is, is that the Israelites have come to the promised land and they're getting ready to enter for the first time. And so Moses sends the 12 spies into the land to scout the land. And of course, 10 of the spies look at it and they see how big the Canaanites are. They see that it's great land, but they see that the Canaanites are huge and strong and powerful, and they say, we cannot take these guys. Of course, Joshua and Caleb have a different story, but that's uh, for another day. Uh, but, but the spies convince the people of Israel that they don't want to go into the land at the time, and so God says, all right, fine. If you don't want to go into the land, then you won't go into the land. And this is what it says in, uh, in Deuteronomy 139. Uh, This is God speaking to the people of Israel. And the little ones that you said would be taken captive, your children who do not yet know Tob and Ra, who do not yet know good and bad, they will enter the land. So what we see here, at least in this case, is that Tob and Ra seems to be something like wisdom or maturity. Wisdom is the ability to be able to do what's good, not just what feels good which is something that many children or most children haven't developed yet. That's a sign of maturity when you can do what's good, not just what feels good. And so if that's the case, then we have to ask another question. We have to say, well, if Tob and Ra is, a, is another word for wisdom, then why would God prevent people from knowing it? Okay, and this is where we have to get into it a little bit more and understand that knowing Tob and Ra, that knowing good and bad is a Hebrew idiom. Okay, now you know what an idiom is, right? Okay, don't look at your neighbor. That's not what it means, all right? You know what an idiom means. It means it's, it's a phrase that you can't determine the meaning of it just by looking at the definition of the words. So for instance, if I were to say, hey, Dave, get off my back, man, right? Um, I, I'm not implying that Dave is actually literally on my back. Okay? But we know that it means something else. It means stop hassling me, okay? Leave me alone. Um, that's, that's what an idiom is, and that's what uh, knowing Tob and Ra means. And, and here's what it means. It means, uh, tob, knowing Tob and Ra means to believe that we can determine what's good and bad for ourselves without reference to God. That we can determine what's good and bad for ourselves without reference to God. Okay? It's to make our own thoughts, to make our own will, to make our own desires the standard for what is wisdom. And the dilemma that this tree presents is, is do I get to be the king who determines what's right and wrong, good and bad, or do do I trust the real king to be able to do that? 
Okay, and this theme is prominent all throughout Scripture, and you certainly see it in uh, Psalms and the Proverbs, for instance. Um, these books are what we call wisdom literature. Okay, they're part of that section of Scripture in the Old Testament. And they continually point to the difference between God's wisdom and our wisdom. So, for instance, in, in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, it says this, "'Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to Him, and He will make your path straight.'" Or Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way that appears to be right, but in the end leads to death, okay? And verses like this all throughout Psalms and Proverbs point back to what we're talking about here in, in Genesis chapter 2, it points back to that original dilemma, okay? So there's the background. Now we're going to move on to chapter 3, and chapter 3 is where the action really starts to happen here, okay? Okay. Um, Adam and Eve are walking around, minding their own business, and all of a sudden, a serpent shows up and starts talking to Eve. Now, we always translate this. We usually associate this serpent with Satan, um, and, and that's a, certainly a reasonable assumption, and I think the, uh, the New Testament refers to that as well. But the story itself doesn't tell us that this is Satan. It just says it's a serpent, okay? Um, in any case, the serpent starts to, starts to talk to them and, and starts to tempt them. And we'll pick it up at the end of verse 1. The serpent asks this. He says, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Okay. Now, first of all, notice that the serpent is twisting God's, word, God, God's words there. Okay? Um, he's getting them to doubt God's provision. See, God didn't say that they couldn't eat from any of the trees in the garden. Okay, just the one. That's all he said. You just can't eat from that one tree. You've got all of these hundreds of other trees, but you can't eat from this one. And so he's tempting them to doubt God's goodness. They had all of these great trees, but you know, maybe God is keeping something from you. Okay? Now, I'm sure you've probably experienced this before. You know, God has provided us with so many good things. I mean, I don't know if, it, sometimes we can get really negative in life, but when you really sit down and think about it, I think it's really, we need to acknowledge how many good things God has given us. But it seems like there's always something inside of us that is just not content with that for some reason. Okay? Maybe we had something and it's taken away, we lose something, or there's something that we want but we can't have and we see other people who have that and, uh, and we question then. We start to question, oh, I wonder, maybe God really isn't that good. Other people have more good things than I do, and I really want this, but God seems to be keeping from me, and so we start to obsess about it, and we start to doubt God's goodness, okay? And the serpent, in his initial question, started to play on this desire, tried to get them to be dissatisfied with the abundance that God had already given them. I mean, they're living in the Garden of Eden. Can you imagine wanting more than that? Well, <laughs> well, Eve passes the first test in verse 2, but, it, but she does seem to be a little bit confused in the process. And so this is what she says in verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Okay, now, her first mistaken thing, her first misstep here comes when she says that they can't eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. Because you remember, there were two trees in the middle of the garden, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we, and we don't really know, maybe they're just shorthand here, so we don't know if she really means anything by it, um, if she w just wasn't clear, or if she was just 
still unsure about which one she could eat from and which one she couldn't. Oh, maybe if it's in the middle of the garden, maybe it's the tree of life that we can't eat from. I don't know. You know, and so she starts to get a little bit confused. But then the second point of confusion, and this is probably the, the more important one, is that, <coughs> is that she actually made God's prohibition more restrictive than it actually was. Okay, Because you remember when, when she said, she said um, not only can we not eat it, but we can't touch it or we'll die. Right? And so she makes it more restrictive and makes God seem to be even more heavy-handed than he was. And so she's starting to doubt God's character and start to wonder, does this God really care for us? You know, it might be smart not to touch it. It might be good. But God didn't say that if they touched it, they would die. Okay? And so she says, if we touch it, we will die. And so the serpent presses into the issue in verse 4. He says, oh, you will not certainly die. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Okay, now notice that the serpent is doing two things here. First, he's questioning God's truthfulness. In fact, he directly contradicts what God says. And it's like he's saying to Eve, he's saying, oh, come on, guys, don't be so gullible. You're not going to die, it's just fruit. I mean, can you imagine just dying from eating fruit? Come on, guys. What could, what could be wrong with eating a little fruit? And the second thing that he does is he starts to question God's motives. And he says something like, well, guys, you know, God isn't really protecting you. You know that, don't you? He's actually keeping something from you. See, God isn't as in control of things as you think he is as he's leading you to believe. He's lying to you because he knows that when you eat that fruit, when you eat it, you're gonna be as powerful as he is. And he's threatened by that. See, a little fruit won't hurt you. In fact, it'll help you transcend your limits and you'll be like God. And God is threatened. That's why he told you not to eat from that tree. Okay? Now, this is a pretty intriguing case. They don't really know. They don't have the experience with it. They've not seen anyone else eat the fruit. And, and die, and so he's just putting this little bug in their ear to get them to doubt God. And it was intriguing, and so she took a second look at the fruit. She started to focus her attention on it. Okay? And, you, and you know what happens when you start to focus your attention on, on sin, especially sin that's attractive. Okay? And, and the wheels start to turn for her. And then we get to verse 6, and it says that she saw three things. First, it's good for food. Second, it's a delight to the eye. And the Hebrew word there means that, basically means that she started to crave it. Okay, she started to develop an appetite for it. And third, she said it was good for gaining wisdom. In other words, now what she was desiring was not just the fruit, but she was desiring the effects of the fruit. That she, was, that, that she thought, you know what, maybe I will be able to attain the wisdom that God has, but he's keeping from me. Okay, and notice the progression. Let's go through it again. Okay, she sees that there's a practical benefit. Okay, it meets her needs. It's good for food. Okay, and of course, what could be wrong with meeting a need, never mind the fact that there are hundreds of other trees in the garden that could meet that same need, right? But she looks at it and she thinks, oh, you know what? It could, it could meet my need for food. But then she started to desire it. Okay, and, and at this point, it becomes more than just a need. It starts to become an appetite. And, and her, her emotions start to get in there, her, her desires. And she reasons, I desire it, so it must be good. I want it, so it must be good. Okay, and what a great uh, description of the ethos of our society, isn't it? 
Okay, I desire it, and so it must be good. And we see this around all kinds of different areas. We see it around the area of sex. I desire it, and it doesn't seem to hurt me right now, and so it must be good. Okay, we see it when it comes to accumulating material things. Okay, um, God would want me to have more. We see it when we refuse to do something like forgive someone. Okay, because it feels good to get back at someone, and so of course God would want me to to get even. I mean, how something makes us feel can very easily become the standard for what we think is right and wrong. And then, of course, we get to the third step, and the third step is rationalization. Not only do we want it, we think, I deserve it, and now anyone who tries to keep it from me doesn't have my best interest in mind, even if that person is God. uh, And I've talked about him before. (coughs) The social psychologist, Jonathan Haidt, says that while we usually believe humans are rational creatures, that we make our decisions based on rational thought, what makes sense to us, it's actually not true. Humans are largely driven by our desires. I don't know how he figures this out, uh, but he says that it's usually about 90-10, like 90% of the time we are driven by our emotions, by our desires, by our unconscious thinking or wants and needs, and only 10% of the time um, do we act according to our rational faculties. And in fact, he uses this image of uh, a rider on an elephant, and he says that our desires are the elephant and our rational faculties are the the person or the uh, rational thinking uh, or or the person Um, and so if you put a rider up against an elephant in a battle of wills who is going to win that okay must much of the time most of the time um, it's going to be the elephant usually our desires drive us and we and then what happens is is we use our rational minds to justify what we really want to do that's the way it usually works now our natural desires and instincts Um, They usually push us toward things like comfort and pleasure and wealth and self-protection and personal advancement. And, And that's ultimately what happened to Adam and Eve. When it came down to it, they had every reason to trust God's provision and his wisdom. Uh, But the idea that they could possibly have more was just too intriguing for them to be able to resist. And so their focus changed and their, and their thoughts turned from God's will to their own will and they seized the throne for themselves. Okay. And so what happened? Verse six, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. So what happened was, was they ate the fruit because they believed that it would make things better for them. Now think about that. God is providing them with everything. They're living in paradise and yet they want more. They think that God is hiding something from them. But what they didn't realize was that focusing on their own desires um, as the standard for good doesn't make things better. It actually makes things worse. First of all, it created a rift in their relationship with each other. 
Okay, when Adam and Eve were created, they lived in harmony. They were naked and had nothing to hide. And of course, that's a, that's a symbol of just being vulnerable with each other, a symbol of, of innocence. But after they sinned, they realized that they were vulnerable, and so they made some makeshift clothes and, and hid. And then when God goes and, and finds them, they start to blame each other, okay? Eve blames the serpent, of course, and, and notice what Adam does. Adam blames not only Eve, but he also blames God, because he says in verse 12, he says, this woman that you put here made me do it. In other words, God, if you hadn't made her, none of this stuff would have ever happened, right? I mean, think about that. So it created a rift between humans, but it also created a rift between humans and God. The trust was broken. They no longer looked to God for provision and wisdom. It became everyone for himself. And rather than going to God for wisdom, they actually hid from God. Now, if you read <coughs> the rest of the scriptures for the week, and I know many of you did, um, what you'll see in Genesis chapters 3 through 11 or 4 through 11 is you'll see story after story after story of this same dilemma playing out over and over. Get to chapter 4. Cain killed his brother Abel because he was acting on his selfish emotion of jealousy. You see the story of Lamech who collected wives and then he bragged to them about the power that he had because he killed a man who had just wounded him. Okay, so he bragged about being able to escalate this, and I'm more powerful, and look at me. And you see this over and over until you get to Genesis 6-5, and it says, every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Think about that statement. And, and even after God starts over with the flood, the people erect this um, huge building. The people of Babel uh, erect this huge building to make a name for themselves. See, it wasn't about fulfilling their God-given purpose and their responsibility. It was about using their power and creativity to make a name for themselves, to, to seize the throne from God. And as we walk through Scripture, we see this pl pattern playing out more and more, over and over. People exchanging their God-given purpose, their God-given responsibility for their own desires. And all the while, God walks with them and provides for them but rather than living for God's purpose according to God's wisdom, they trust in their own understanding and they turn in on themselves. But whether we're in the Old Testament or the New Testament, whenever it seemed hopeless, and this is the great news of it, and <coughs> um, this is the great news of it, that God comes through and he offers grace. He offers wisdom. He offers his provision. So for instance, in in chapter 3 here, when Adam and Eve sin, God doesn't run away from them, but he seeks them out. And, and certainly they had to pay the price for what they did, but God makes a covering for them, and there's a lot of care and concern for them in the process. In any case, God doesn't leave them alone, but he continues to offer his provision and his wisdom so they could live up to their calling. And what, you, what I want you to see here, and this will happen all throughout this series is, is that this is more than just a story that happened way back then. It's a story that continues to happen over and over and over. You see, we all live with this temptation to make our kingdom rather, God, rather than God's kingdom our priority. Rather than remembering our God-given responsibility to seek the good of other people and the world, we turn in on ourselves. And rather than using what we have to serve others, we use others to serve ourselves. 
And the result is broken relationships and it's distance from God. And we see that there's a price that we pay for seizing the throne for ourselves. But of course, the climax of this story, and we're not there yet, but I thought we need to put this into perspective. The climax of this story is that God takes on human form in the man called Jesus. And he perfectly lives out the image of God that we were called to live out, that God created us for. The Apostle Paul even calls him the new Adam because he lived the life that Adam should have lived. And when he did, he showed us the way to be truly human. He showed us the way to reflect the image of God. In Adam and Eve, we see, what, what we, uh, we see the worst of what we could be. But in Jesus, we see exactly what we should be. But not only did Jesus show us how to be truly human by serving others rather than himself, he actually died and took on the effects of the curse, the effects of our sin by dying in our place so that we can start again. And then he rose again to show us that he is the true Lord and King. And now today, we can not only see the wisdom of God in the person of Jesus and in his life, but we can actually receive the power that God intended us to have to live the way that God intended us to live. And this is God's ultimate provision that he's promised to us to help us to be able to fulfill our calling. In your notes, on the very back page, I believe, I've just included some, uh, some questions for personal reflection. The worship team can come forward and uh, we'll, uh, we'll close out here. But it's mostly for you to be able to reflect on those three things that we talked about. God's provision, on God's uh, purpose, and God's wisdom. And how are, we, how are we doing that? Do I live as if my purpose is to fulfill my God-given calling, to represent God and to work for the good of the world? In what ways am I tempted not to trust in God's provision? In what ways do I not see everything that God has given me and instead I just want more and more and more? In what ways am I tempted to make my own desires the basis for what I believe is wise rather than God's word? Let's pray. Lord, thanks for this word today. (coughs) And as we consider these questions... Lord, I pray that we would be able to see not just the story of Adam and Eve, but that we would be able to see our own story. To see the ways in which we are tempted to reject your wisdom and to make our own desires and our own thoughts the the judge of what is right. I pray that you would forgive us for those times when we have, instead of seeing our lives as meant to fulfill the purpose that you've given us to rule in a way that that glorifies you, that cares for your creation, that cares for your people, instead we've turned in on ourselves and we've used our abilities and our skills and um, and all of the things that you've given us, our resources to be able to gratify ourselves, to glorify ourselves. Lord, I just pray, God, that we would take this story to heart, that we would understand our God-given purpose, that we would live with gratitude for your provision, and that we would seek your wisdom. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Please stand as we end in worship.